Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony Jashatino. And today I'm going to be continuing uh, with the discussion of World War I. Um, you know, especially in the United States, as I've mentioned um, in my previous uh, podcast, World War I is kind of a blip on the radar. And it's a blip because by the time the United States got involved in the war, it was 1917, the war beginning in 1914. And then by the time we really got involved in fighting, it was 1918. And, you know, so we were only in the war for honestly, you know, a a little over a year, maybe all things considered. But for Britain, for Germany, for France, for Austria, well, Austria-Hungary doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, for, for the people of Austria and Hungary and Serbia and Russia... Um, you know, this war at Belgium, of course, this war was a four-year bloodbath. And so their memories are quite the more colored by it. You know, they, they are the countries that lost millions of men, you know, at the very least hundreds of thousands of dead into the millions with wounded. Um, and and it, it is such an important war because it was a watershed. Um, it completely destroyed the entire system that had existed in Europe since the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s. I mean, up uh, from that point, yes, there were wars that, you know, uh, and I know some of this I mentioned in my previous podcast. There were wars that took place, the Crimean War, the Franco-Prussian War, but none of these wars really massively impacted the entirety of Europe. They impacted things regionally. For example... The Austro-Prussian War affected who was going to be uh, the the country that defined what was Germany. And it came out, Prussia defeats Austria, therefore Prussia becomes the driving force in German unification. And later on, they will actually form the German Empire after they beat France in the Franco-Prussian War. But none of that really changed anything radically. I mean... A little bit of territorial adjustments here and there. <clears throat> World War I uh, completely upends Europe. Um, not only, again, are the casualties extraordinarily more significant. I mean, we're talking about going from, you know, maybe a few hundred thousand casualties. And some, I mean, probably the closest that you would come back would have been something, on the, in Europe at least, would have been the Napoleonic Wars. You know, but even then, the individual battles, you know, you might have several thousand casualties. I mean, Bordino was the, the most, and, you know, you had 50-some thousand uh, in Bordino, uh, give or take, you know. And yet, here, all of a sudden, <laughs> you're talking about hundreds of thousands dead uh, into the millions in the casualties, and battles that didn't last three days, battles that lasted... Six months, battles that lasted, uh, you know, months and months at a time uh, and resulted in the occupation of, what, a few miles of territory, uh, nothing able to crack it. So with with that having been said, I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened now in my uh, previous podcast in part one. And if you haven't listened to it, by all means, go back and listen to it. And if you have, you'll realize where we are. I wanted to talk about what happened once the war got underway. A lot of what I talked about last time was what was going on. The build-up, 
And now the war is on. Everyone in Europe is at war with one another, with almost no exceptions at all. So what were the objectives? What was going on? What did each country hope to deal with? Well, you know, certainly, um, you know, Austria-Hungary wanted to punish Serbia. But Austria-Hungary also realized that Russia was a major threat. Germany um, welcomed a war at this point because, you know, sometimes even though you might think, well, it might not be a great time to start a war, you might think later on is going to be even worse. Uh, France had joined in with Russia in helping to modernize their army, and that was uh, scheduled to be done by 1917. And so the German military, the German high command was like, well, you know, the heck with it. They've got a lot more men than us. The only advantage we've really had over the, Ger- uh, over the Russians, that the Germans had over the Russians, was that our military was much better than theirs. It was much more well-trained. It was certainly with, with uh, regards to the quality of the, the material, the arms, it was much better. But by 1917, the Russian army would have been brought up to, uh, you know, up to snuff on that. And so for the Germans, they were like, well, listen, if we're going to go to war, might as well go to war now. Makes more sense. Uh, But the entire German plan was based off of, of course, knocking France out of the war. Now, I know that in hindsight, we look at it and we say, well, what a terrible, terrible idea. Why? Because it didn't work. But again, the Germans came within 15 miles of Paris. Paris was being, all government agencies were being evacuated Uh, The French had to borrow every single taxi cab in Paris to ferry troops to the front to launch a desperate counterattack against the Germans, which resulted in the victory of the First Battle of the Marne, the miracle of the Marne. And the Germans after that, yeah, after that, I know everyone goes on, oh, well, you know, that was it, the war was over, except that it wasn't, okay? And, you know, again, to say that any particular event was the turning point it, it still wasn't the turning point in the war. But what it did was it completely threw the entire German battle plan out of order because the German idea, the plan that Germany had was it'll take Russia a long time to mobilize because it's a very big country and their internal lines of communication and transportation is not really that great. So what we'll do is we'll hit France you know, with everything but the kitchen sink, I mean, at one point, 80% of Germans of Germany's military was actually thrown against France. Um, and then they were like, okay, and then once we knock France out, which again, they almost did, they came very close to doing. They did it in 1871, they did it in the Franco-Prussian War, no reason to believe they wouldn't do it again. And like I said, they almost did. And then once that was done, they would turn around and deal with Russia and, you know, expand German influence into the East. And if you really look at the way that the war turned out, they were unsuccessful in the Western Front, but they did defeat Russia. Uh, Russia ended up having a revolution, but the revolution was in huge parts because of the catastrophic losses that the Russians suffered against the Germans uh, in the East. And so, you know, if it not had been for that, might there not have been a revolution in Russia? Might communism never have taken root in Eastern Europe? You know, yeah, prob- it probably wouldn't have, okay? But it just so happened that it, it did because the Russians, you know, got absolutely obliterated by the Germans in pretty much every battle that they faced, with, with very few exceptions. 
So we talk about these things and we talk about what was going on. So the Germans wanted to take France out. They failed. And in failing to do that, both sides basically had what we call a race to the sea, where they both dug trenches in an effort to outflank one another. And it ended in a tie. Had the Germans held the high ground, um, French and British trenches were notoriously filled with water. If you ever want to see some horrific pictures, uh, go use your favorite search engine, turn Safe Search off, and Google trench foot. Okay? This was the result of soldiers uh, basically being up to their ankles in water and mud for days and weeks. And the feet basically bloated up and started splitting. Uh, it was terrible. It, w- it was absolutely terrible conditions. But both sides made one major uh, mistake. They continued to try and fight this war based on the tactics of the past. And several things precluded that from happening. First of all, the advent of much more modernized machine guns. Um, Full frontal assaults became suicidal charges. Could they work in limited situations? Yes. Uh, Using cavalry in the beginning, absolutely suicidal. Uh, The machine guns that were used by the French and the Germans and the British uh, completely made charging over open land uh, ridiculous. And artillery had become much, much better, much more deadly. So what the British, French, and Germans usually did was they employed something called a creeping barrage. And what this meant was that they would basically start firing the artillery and concentrating it, let's say, 500 yards in front of where they were going to go. Then they would start rolling it. Like every few minutes, they would roll it another 10 yards forward and 10 yards forward. So, you know, they're basic. It's like a rainstorm going through a city, how it just starts moving through the city and hitting different places. And the idea was that you would have your infantry kind of stay just behind where your artillery was going because you didn't want your artillery hitting your own soldiers. And then the hope was that by the time it got to the enemy trenches, it would force them either out of the trenches or it would kill them or it would force them into hiding. And then as it rolled past, your infantry would be right there, jump into the trenches, seize the day. And unfortunately, this didn't work a lot of the times because, you know, the enemy troops started getting used to the fact that it's like, okay, they're going to bombard. Uh, Let's just, you know, kind of chill out and wait for it to come through. And then we get up and fight them. Also, there weren't, you know, the communications weren't the best. So sometimes you accidentally got a little too far forward and you killed a couple of, uh, you know, Uh, platoons of your guys before they then went forward. I mean, friendly fire was a very, very real thing during World War I. Um, And also, the terrain became very problematic because no man's land, the room, uh, the space between uh, the enemy trenches, often became completely pockmarked. And, you know, from the artillery shells, it was barren, it was desolate, it looked like a landscape from hell, according to contemporaries. And so these, these soldiers, it wasn't just like you were running across open land. You know, you were running and then all of a sudden you had to go down into this, you know, this ditch and then you had to climb your way back up and the ditches were filled with water. You know, men were shot and fell back into the water and drowned. I mean, they're still finding bodies in, uh, in Belgium, you know, in the area of Passchendaele, 
uh, where, where the three battles of Ypres took place. You know, when they dig, they're still coming up with bodies. Guys that simply were shot, fell back into the water, drowned, and then the mud covered them over and has covered them over for the last 100 years. Um, you know, it was terrible. Um, so in order to break this deadlock, both sides tried to resort to new uh, techniques and new tactics and new weapons. And I wanted to talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, first of all, one of the major new weapons of the war, of course, was uh, the airplane. Now, the airplane was a major, major advancement because it allowed people to get that bird's eye view. And you have to think about it. Airplanes hadn't even been around for a decade by the time World War I, uh, you know, took place. <clears throat> and originally they were used for what we call reconnaissance flying over enemy territories, saying, okay, I see where their artillery is, That's where they're pro- or this is where I see a bunch of soldiers, they're going to attack from here. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the, both sides started sending up stuff. And it started out with guys carrying pistols with them and, and shooting, and then rifles and shooting at the opponent, opponent's planes. And then it turned into, well, you know what, we're just going to arm the planes themselves, and we're going to send them over to shoot down our enemy planes and stop them from spying on us. And, uh, you know, the, the era of the dogfight, you know, plane by plane took place. Um, the British, fun fact, refused to give their pilots parachutes because they thought they would abandon their planes. And as we've talked about before, material is expensive, but human life is fairly cheap. I believe that the average lifespan of a pilot during World War I was something like three to six weeks. Um, now, again, that doesn't mean every single pilot that ever existed only lived three to six weeks. But it was not uncommon at all for someone who just came in, their first flight out, they went out, they got shot down, dead. They'd been involved in it for less than a week. There were many pilots who lived for months at a time. And the conditions were much better than living in the trenches. You might be willing to make that wager. You might say, listen, it'll be easier for me if I, you know, I'm a pilot. My chances of dying, you know, they're decent enough. Uh, but the technologies improved, and eventually, you know, both sides developed tremendous planes. Um, the Sopwith Camel for the British, the Spad for the French, uh, the, the Fokker Eindeckers and DR3s, the famous plane of the Red Baron. Uh, you know, instead of the biplane, it was a triplane, had three wings, although most of his kills were done in a, in a biplane. But... <clears throat> All sides uh, threw this out there. The Germans experimented with uh, poison gas. Uh, in the beginning, poison gas was used in a really very simple fashion. You had a bunch of canisters of poison gas. You opened them and let the wind carry the poison gas into the enemy trenches. The only problem with that was that occasionally the wind changes directions and it would blow back towards the Germans. Um, so eventually what they started doing is started filling artillery pieces, uh, you know, uh, shells with poison gas and dumping it. This was mostly uh, mustard and chlorine gas. Uh, Mustard gas would cause terrible burns uh, on the body, could cause blindness. Chlorine gas, chlorine gas if inhaled would basically cause the lungs to start bleeding and you would drown in your own blood. There's nothing that could be done at the time. Um, These were both horrific instruments uh, but they were used in order to try and clear trenches because the alternative was, again, to charge at a trench and lose 
you know, 40% of your forces because by the time you even got across no man's land, the machine guns had made small work of you. Um, so they, they tried to do this. Uh, probably the most significant development was uh, a British invention, and it became known as the tank. Uh, because the parts for it were disguised when it was secret, when it was under secret, uh, you know, a protocol as water tanks for the front. But the tank was basically a huge piece of armor uh, with tracks on the side. And there were two types of tanks, uh, male and female, the British had. Um, female tanks simply had a bunch of machine guns out of the sides. Male tanks had a large cannon in the front. And both sides were used. Um, the whole point of tanks was that they could cross over no man's land and they could cross, they could basically run over barbed wire, which was strung all about in front of enemy trenches. Because as a soldier, when you came up to the barbed wire, it, it took time cutting it open because you couldn't just like, you know, jump over it. You get caught up in it. And then as you, your, your, your clothing got caught up, you were basically like a fly in a spider web. Uh, just waiting for someone to, you know, shoot you down. Uh, but tanks could basically run over it. And so in World War I, even though the average speed of a tank was about four miles an hour, which is pretty much about the rate that a person can walk if they're walking at a, a fair clip, the tanks would run over and so soldiers would get behind the tank, also because the tanks could handle machine gun rounds. They could not handle artillery pieces. So if you managed to, you know, get a... Get a uh, you know, a field artillery piece and shoot right at a tank, you would knock it out, okay? But if you were firing machine guns, it would just go off of the tank. So the infantry would follow up, and then when the tank broke a hole in the line, they would exploit it and run through. Um, tanks were notorious for breaking down constantly, but the idea was there, and it did make a difference. And in the beginning, when these tanks showed up, uh, it was a psychological major victory uh, for the Allied forces. Uh, eventually, the Germans will put their own tanks together, but they only managed to manufacture a handful of them. Uh, they were not terribly good. I believe there are two left um, in the world today. Um, the uh, A7 Wotan tank, uh, which is in, I want to say, the Smithsonian. Uh, not 100% sure about that one. There, there are two that are left. Uh, but anyway, tanks were one of the major things. Of course, submarines, the German for Unterseeboot or U-boat, were submarines. This was a complete uh, game changer in the ocean. Uh, up until this point, you know, you had uh, ships that would fight against one another on the surface, and you saw them. The U-boat was considered unchivalrous because you couldn't see it. And then the next thing you knew, you had a torpedo in the side of your boat, and it was sinking. And unfortunately, you know, U-boats would fire at ships and, you know, even though they tried very hard not to go after civilian ships, sometimes that didn't work out. And as one of the main German plans was to starve Britain, Britain is an island. So in order to continue the war, Britain has to keep importing things. They, they, they can't always support themselves. The German idea was no problem. You need to import things. What we're going to do is we're going to surround your island with submarines, and we're just going to sink every ship that comes nearby, trying to bring you food, oil, you know, supplies of any kind. And, uh, of course, the, uh, you know, the Lusitania, which is a ship sailing from America, uh, which, it, whose, whose passengers, by the way, had been warned. 
in writing by the Imperial German government, listen, uh, we're at war with England. Any ship that comes into uh, British waters is going to be sunk. So if you value your lives, don't do this. But uh, the people said, well, the hell with it. We're going to do it anyway. And they sailed. And we do know now that the Lusitania was carrying arms for Britain. Uh, But that wasn't common knowledge at the time. The Germans sunk the ship. Uh, Well over 100 Americans died. And America got really ticked off about it. And Germany did not want to bring America into the war. So they were like, okay, we're sorry. What we're going to do from now on is this. Instead of having what we call unrestricted submarine warfare, we're going to basically do the following. When we see a ship... We're going to surface the submarine. Now, that is a very dangerous thing because submarines, when they come to the surface, um, are very vulnerable to attacks by a number of things. First of all, from other ships that could see them, can start opening fire on them. They can, now that they see them, they can launch torpedoes against the submarine. Uh, airplanes can attack a submarine. So surfacing is really not the best thing for a sub. But the whole point was that the submarine would surface and then they would basically say to the ship, listen, we're going to sink you, but we're going to give you 15 minutes to get all of your people off of the ship, okay, uh, and into lifeboats and away from the ship. Uh, you, can, you can call in that, you know, we've been attacked. So the whole idea was we're going to sink all of the cargo, but we don't want to kill the people. And uh, <laughs> the British started saying, okay, that's great. So what they started doing was disguising many of their uh, armed ships as basically passenger ships and cargo ships. So when the German submarines would surface and say, hey, you guys have 15 minutes, the British ships would immediately drop the pretenses and start firing upon them. Uh, Eventually, this is going to lead the Germans to, in 1917, to go back to unrestricted submarine warfare, where they're going to attempt to just sink everything that comes near Britain, and it will eventually be one of the catalysts bringing the U.S. uh, into the war. And, uh, you know, that really is kind of the beginning of the end. Although, again, they almost managed to pull things off. So you had these new techniques, these new tactics that were being used, and they were being used because, again, as I said, there were major battles during the First World War that racked up absolutely catastrophic numbers. I mean, if you want to look at certain uh, battles, you you could look at things like, for example, you look at the Battle of Verdun. Now, Verdun was a battle. Verdun was a fortress area in France. It was a very historic area for the French. And the German idea was, listen... We're going to attack it. The French will feel the need to defend it, okay? And therefore, they'll keep on pouring soldiers into that area, and we'll just keep killing them. And yes, we're going to lose soldiers too, but through a battle of what we call attrition, they're going to lose more than us, okay? And eventually, we're going to bleed them white. Um, <clears throat> the, <laughs> uh, the, the end result of things were that... Uh, you know, the French lost, you know, well over half a million. The Germans lost well over half a million. Uh, it, it turned, it was a six-month battle uh, in which countless men were simply fed into a grinder and died. The Battle of the Somme, which was an attempt to relieve 
the Battle of Verdun, the British were convinced to attack, uh, is, is one of the absolute black days of the British army. On the first day, the first day of the battle, the British lost 57,000 casualties, including 19,000 dead. That's in one day. One day, 19,000 dead. I mean, we think about things like the fact that the, the Vietnam War lasted for two decades, you know, over 50,000. Uh, we look at things like World War II. We were involved for four years in World War II, the United States, you know, almost 300,000. I mean, one day, 20,000. And it would cost the British, uh, over the course of the six months that the Somme took place, it would cost them over a half a million. And basically for gains of several miles. We're not talking about for gains, you know, they managed to crack the German lines. At no point were any lines cracked. Not until 1918, okay? Battles continued to rage on on the Western Front through the trenches, and they would capture a few miles at the cost of 100,000 casualties. Now, in other areas of the war, uh, and this is going to be the final part of today's uh, podcast, I'm going to talk about some of the other areas, uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire, which joined the war, and for those of you who don't know, the Ottoman Empire is what is today current-day current Turkey and parts of the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire joined on behalf of, of the Central Powers because the Ottomans and the Russians had a long, long, long history of uh, fighting one another, and the Ottomans had lost a lot of the Balkan Serbia. They wanted to get things back, and they felt, as many people might have at the time, Germany was going to win the war anyway, so there's a great opportunity uh, the Ottomans attacked the Russians across the Caucasus Mountains, suffered horrific casualties, um, ended up coming to a, a stop there. Meanwhile, the British, who were desperately trying to protect the Suez Canal, that's the, that's the canal that runs through Egypt today, that connects the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and therefore to the Indian Ocean. Uh, the British owning India desperately needed that. Uh, the British tried a couple of attempts to break the Ottoman army, because the Ottoman army, like Russia, was seen as retooling itself. Uh, they were much smaller than the Russian army, but the Ottoman army, uh, you know, fought several pitched battles that they did very well at. Um, one of the major ones, the British tried to uh, attack them from behind. They thought that they could crack the Ottomans and therefore uh, get help to the Russians, who were floundering by 1915, 1916. And uh, they attacked into what is modern-day Iraq. The British got surrounded at a place called Kut, and were, eventually they were uh, completely captured, uh, uh, overwhelmed and, and captured. Um, also, the British tried an attempt sponsored by uh, a young man named Sir Winston Churchill. I wasn't Sir Winston at the time yet, but he was terribly, terribly young. I'm just saying he was, he was younger. But his idea was that they could launch basically a sneak attack and seize uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, from the Ottomans. Um, and so they landed through the Dardanelles at a place called Gallipoli. And uh, it, was, it wasn't a bad idea. And it could have worked. But it didn't. The Ottomans became aware of it, and it turned into a months-long absolute bloodbath where both sides just launched constant attacks at one another at the cost of tens of thousands of soldiers. Uh, the only thing about Gallipoli, which I've had the fortune of visiting, I was there uh, a few years ago, um, it is just amazing. You look at the, the beaches and you're like, wow, they kind of charged up land here and 
you know, the Ottomans just picked them off. Uh, the only thing that went without Hitch and Gallipoli was the withdrawal. Uh, but the Ottoman Empire would eventually fall because of uh, the British pressures and because of the inability of Germany to continue supporting her in Austria. Uh, you know, other places uh, in the East, you know, Russia continued to try and mount attacks to alleviate pressure uh, from the, the British and French to keep the Germans from overwhelming them. Uh, but they really couldn't. And by 1917, uh, especially after the Brusilov Offensive, the Russian army started going into states of mutiny. Uh, soldiers refused to charge. They started shooting their officers. They said, this is really, really stupid. Why are we doing this? Um, unfortunately for Germany, their intelligence completely failed them. At the same time, France was suffering from mutinies because their soldiers were tired of being told to just simply charge over the tops of the trenches and attack into a full stream of machine gun bullets. Um, and so had Germany basically attacked 1917, they probably could have broken through French lines completely. They didn't. Uh, by the way, foreshadowing, we're going to be talking about German intelligence failures during World War II uh, as well, and they're even bigger. Uh, but by, by the end of 1917, a couple of things had happened. Number one, Russia was out of the war. Uh, they they were completely um, in in full retreat, and they eventually would sign a treaty, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, because the communists, the Bolsheviks, had taken over. They wanted out of the war. Uh, this was a disaster for the the Western Allies because now Germany could turn and take those millions of soldiers that they had had in the East and just throw them against France and England. But on the other side of things. The Americans, who nobody gave any kind of credibility to and felt that these guys will be just, you know, these guys don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to fight a real war. They won't be able to get anyone here. The United States of America managed to start landing hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And they were landing them at a time when the Germans in 1918 in the spring went on the offensive. It was called Operation Michael. And the idea was to just basically try and absolutely hammer the British and the French before the Americans could make a difference. They thought they could do it. The initial phases were very successful. They used new tactics, including what were called Hütte tactics, after the, the um, uh, was a colonel that did, did it, Colonel Hütte. Um, and the idea was basically not to just attack across a broad front, but to send specialized forces to penetrate enemy lines, get into the rear, and then, as the enemy realized that their lines had been breached, then to exploit that with the general infantry as the enemy was turning around. Um, these were kind of the forerunners of what in World War II we're going to call Blitzkrieg tactics. Only the Blitzkrieg tactics use tanks, uh, which go much faster than humans can, and so they can crack the lines much more quickly. But you could start to see in World War I, towards the end, the generals start getting this idea. And this is what's really important. They start understanding 
whereas in 1914, 15, 16, they're using these tactics from basically, you know, almost Napoleonic war times of, listen, we just have to mass our forces and, and do a frontal assault. Yes, we're going to lose a bunch of soldiers, but we'll eventually overwhelm them. Well, that doesn't work when you've got modern technology against you. But by 1917 and so, they started to realize, hey, we can use different tactics based upon the weapons we've got. We can try and penetrate through enemy lines, you know, get into their rear, disrupt things, disrupt communications, and then follow through. We can use tanks. We can use aircraft. We can continue to attack uh, multiple fronts at one time, and, and we can break through. And that's what they did. Uh, and so by 1918, you know, these same generals who had been completely criticized in the early parts of the war uh, for their incompetence, were leading soldiers to victory. And by 1918, by the fall of 1918, uh, Germany was in retreat. Their military force essentially shattered. Uh, they fought a very dogged and brave uh, retreat. But this whole argument that Germany, and, and this is something that I'll bring up in my next episode when I talk about the end of the war, this whole argument that Germany could have continued fighting uh, is absolutely false. By the fall of 1918, uh, Germany itself was having revolution. There were food riots in almost every major German city. The German fleet refused to sail out and fight. Uh, it, basically, they were kind of ordered to do a semi-suicide mission. Like, well, if we're going to lose, let's go out fighting. And they were like, no, let's let's not do that. Let's let's live. Okay. Um, you know, soldiers started refusing to obey their commander's orders. They just wanted the war to end. And with the advent of the American soldiers, there was no question about who was winning the war anymore, especially because Austria-Hungary had collapsed. Bulgaria, one of their eyes, collapsed. The Ottoman Empire was collapsing. Um, it was nothing. It was it was Germany versus everyone, and they no longer had the ability to fight everyone. And so that was what the situation was by 1918. So, um, in my next episode, I'm going to kind of talk about um, the end of the war. I'll talk a little bit about what happened towards the very end, and I'll talk about the aftermath of the war and what you know the ramifications were because it completely completely changed Europe. Um, no longer, multiple empires, which had existed for uh, hundreds of years, you know, were gone. They were completely gone, uh, you know, and the entire structure of power in Europe and, you know, in the Middle East, which is one of the things that to this day haunts us, you know, the downfall of the Ottoman Empire led to the partitioning of lands in the Middle East, um, you know, the Balfour Declaration, the promise that His Majesty's government looks with favor upon the establishment of a Jewish homeland in the Middle East. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's a direct result. Israel is a direct result of World War I. Um, you know, and, and these are things, you know, all of these conflicts that we have in the Middle East today, they are a direct result of World War I, of the way that the, the Western powers handled things. Um, and again, World War I... You know what, when, when I talk about it and the next time you're going to realize it, it didn't really solve anything in the long run. 
Um, 20 years later, Germany will launch World War II, which is basically the same attempt to create what we call Lebensraum, what the Germans call Lebensraum, living space in the East. You can really best look at it as two acts. There's Act 1 of the play, which is World War One, and then there's Act 2, which is World War Two. But it's basically the same guys and the same objectives and, you know, the, the, just, just a lot more people end up getting killed uh, before this whole thing is over. So, and like I said, it completely changes everything because after World War I, you know, Europe is totally different than World War II comes around. And, you know, since that point, we've basically been struggling with military conflict throughout. Fortunately, after that, it, it dies down. But, you know, I guess that's for my Cold War podcast. We're going to talk about that and correct a lot of people's assumptions about what really happened during the Cold War. Anyway, um, that's it for today. So if you have any uh, questions, comments, do feel free to go and uh, you can, you can, um, leave a voice message for me, um, tweet me, Instagram, at Antonius Optimus, um, you know, make comments about it. Uh, that's me for right now, and uh, when I talk again next week, we're going to be talking about the ending of the war. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of their week, and I look forward to chatting with you all soon. Bye-bye.